Okay, good morning. Just that force, good morning from the front. If you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy, be looking in chapter 2, uh, 9 to 15 this morning. But thank you for everyone uh, braving those roads today. There, there's something about driving on snow and ice. There's a proper way to go about doing it. Uh, there's kind of unwritten rules, right? This is actually an introduction to my message. I'm not just, <laughs> I'm just talking about the snow. But uh, you're right, like every year it snows, there's ice, and we're like, oh, wait a second. How am I supposed to drive on this? I'm supposed to maybe drive slower. I'm maybe supposed to, <laughs> I'm maybe supposed to leave a little bit more time to get somewhere. I'm supposed to pump the brakes. Uh, and, and, and so on, right? And so there's these like unwritten rules that, hey, you can do otherwise, but it's risky. You can, you can go against what, you know, how we should drive on snow, but it's risky. It's even actually, so when I first got my license, I forget, I think it would have been in October, many years ago, and shortly thereafter it snowed. And as a new driver, I was experimenting. <laughs> And I, and I figured out about the e-brake that if I went around the corner and kind of pulled it, it was a lot of fun. And I started getting more and more confident driving on snow. I thought I knew what I was doing and pulling the e-brake and going further and further. And eventually I hit some ice, went flying to the curb and messed up the alignment such that it would turn right by itself. <laughs> so I, like there's these rules that you could obey or you could go against them and you do it at your own risk. And this is like, it's not the proper analogy because the thing that we're going to talk about today is much greater. That God has given us instruction in his word on how we should gather as a church. And if it's clear, we should obey. And if we don't, we're doing it at our own risk. And I would ask if people would say that this text is not clear, then what else in Scripture is not clear? So I'm, I'm actually going to pray, even before we look at our text this morning, I'm going to pray again. If you want to bow with me. Oh God, I thank you that you are with us, Lord. What a joy to sing songs to your name, uh, to meet with you, to meet with God's people. And I pray now as we open up your word, Lord, speak through me. Give us clarity. Uh, allow us to see uh, what your word says. Work in our hearts by your spirit. I pray for your strength. Oh, Lord, and, and I, I just pray that uh, everything that is said uh, would be for your glory and your honor. But I ask, oh, Holy Spirit, you take this word and apply it to our hearts and our minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. If you want to stand with me, we're going to read God's word together. I'm actually going to start in verse 8, because that is connected in terms of context. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8 to verse 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15. We're talking about instructions for women in the church for today. Is this for today? In, in its context, 1 Timothy, if you haven't been with us, it's a letter given to Timothy by Paul. He's in 
Ephesus, Timothy's in Ephesus, and it's dealing with the different things that were happening within the church at the time. Already in, in chapter one, Paul's talked about false teachers that were present there and kind of rebuking them and then exposing, hey, what, you, what should you be about? You should be about the gospel. And Paul kind of gave his own life as an example, as the gospel changing, grabbing hold of him, believing in Jesus Christ, one who is killing Christians to one who is proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And then as we got into, into chapter 2, we looked at uh, this past couple of weeks, there's a whole section on prayer, right? In, in 2 verse 1, talking about praying for all people, and in 2 verse 4, talking about God's desire is for all people, and in 2 verse 8, we looked at last week, calling men to pray in every place. So the context is the church, Right? This is what we're talking about. And the thought continues on, even in the section we're looking at. The context is the local church is the gathering. And then following what we're looking at today, you get into chapter 3. You're talking about elders and deacons within a local church. So that's the, where the message sits. Even as Dave, Dave prayed from, Paul said, hey, I'm writing to these things in 3 verse uh, 15. If I, if I don't come, you'll, ought, you'll know how one ought to behave in the household of God. It's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here are these true things, and this is how you should behave in a church, and this is what it looks like. So this is part of what Paul's doing here in 1 Timothy. So the section we're looking at here this morning, the first few verses, looking at 9 to 10, I want us to see, I want us to, to see clearly, let your outward life match your inward life. I think that's the heart of what's being said here. Let your outward life match. Match your inward life. Paul begins there in verse 9, likewise. Likewise, in the Greek, in this sentence, in, in, chapter, in verse 9, there's not a verb given. The verb's actually borrowed from verse 8, where he talks about men called to pray. So it's actually the same thought is given to verse 9. It's actually talking about prayers, talking about worship within the local church. And in the same way, just as men can hinder their prayers by anger and dissension, and, and women can too, but it seems like maybe men are more prone to that, women can also hinder their prayers and the prayers of others by their dress and outward appearance. And of course, men could land there too, but maybe women are more prone to that. This is what Paul is addressing. And so looking at what Paul is calling them to, I just want to look at the negative first. Likewise, also that women should... Don't look at what positive. They should not adorn themselves with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's an illustrative one. This is a rebuke to women in the church setting who are so focused on themselves and what they wore, they're distracting themselves and others from worship. In that time, uh, women would especially more wealthy women would, as they braided their hair in all types of extravagant uh, styles, they would literally put in their gold and their jewels within their hair. And it's like the more you could put in, the more you could show kind of, of, of what you're worth. Uh, so seemingly this was happening at this time. And then even the fact that it talks about modest clothing, it seems like there was some who are wearing immodest clothing, maybe stuff that was is too revealing. It was drawing attention to themselves. Uh, maybe just causing some people to, to lust. Uh, MacArthur says this about this, this time. Paul is confronting any gaudy, ostentatious hairdo that would distract attention from the Lord and the purposes that are holy. Women in that culture often wove gold pearls or other jewelry through their hairdos to call attention to themselves and their wealth or beauty. Another commentator says this. A God, this is godliness being crowded out by vanity. Godliness being crowded out by vanity. So just a, a question, are you allowed to braid your hair or wear jewelry? Wear nice clothes? I think, of course. Of course, like Proverbs 31, there's the Proverbs 31 women in, in 31, the second part of 22, it says her clothing is fine linen and purple. She has great clothing. She, she wears good stuff. We see throughout Scripture, uh, even as... Um, in Genesis chapter 24, as uh, Abraham sends his servant to get a wife for Isaac, he comes with gifts that are for, have earrings and jewelry. And we see throughout scripture, it's okay for women to wear 
jewelry. Is it okay for women to have braided hair? Uh, my wife, Rebecca, actually, from time to time, and I asked her if I could share this, loves to get her hair braided. And interesting, at, at Bible college, she had, I think, went to Atlanta in the summer, got her hair braided, and came back, and then someone in the cafeteria came and, and shared this verse with her. <laughs> and said, hey, you're not supposed to have your hair braided. No, you can have your hair braided. You can have your hair styled. You right? we, God has given us the ability to, to look good. But the thing is, it's our heart issue. Where, where are we taking that to? Where do we want people's eyes to look to? So that's kind of the negative. Look at the positive that Paul is calling a women to there in verse 9 and 10. That women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. In, in verse 10, what is proper for women who profess godliness? Like women who are saying, yes, I've believed in Jesus Christ. I confess him as Lord of my life, of every area. I'm believing in him, and then I want to live for him. I want every aspect of my life to kind of fall in line with belief in Jesus Christ. So respectable, modest clothing. Just the question, is it, is it pleasing to God, or will this bring every eye to me? I think that's a, a simple way to understand that. When I was young and I, and I didn't know the Lord, I had a jacket that was bright yellow. <laughs> I wanted everyone to look at me. That's why I wore the jacket. It wasn't for any other reason. All eyes on me. Right? So that type of attitude is, is not definitely modest and respectable. So it's calling women and, and everyone really. But like, is your clothing again, is it respectable, is it modest? And will it keep all eyes on you? Or will it glorify God? Modesty. Howard Marshall says this. Here it refers to the modesty or decency with which women should behave. This includes the avoidance of clothing and adornment which might be showy and extravagant as well as sexually enticing. Of course, it's uh, the day and age in which we live. It's like, what, really? The Bible holds to such things? And, it, and it's easier in the wintertime. <laughs> we don't have to even talk about that. But just uh, everyone kind of has to, in their own heart, decide, hey, am I going to dress in ways that are appropriate, called for a godly woman, also godly men, to be pleasing to the Lord there. It's respectable, modest clothing, and with self-control. Think about how important self-control is. Even in this section, it starts with self-control. And verse 15 ends with self-control. In fact, that's the call of the Christian life. In Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 11, just a few pages down, Paul writes this to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's the call of a Christ follower. But it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit that we would be self-controlled. And so it's, it's a calling, hey, you've confessed Christ, so live lives that are full of self-control. This is an area we all want to grow into in increasingly measure. But again, I, and I would say that's the work of the Spirit in us. We can keep praying, Lord, give me greater self-control. Paul's asking for that within the worship setting. In verse 10, he's saying, hey, Again, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? A quick list, even within the letter of good works that Paul uses for widows in, in 5.10, 1 Timothy 5.10, he says this, talking about good works for widows, that they have a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the seats of feet of the saints, serving other believers, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. It's not an exhaustive list. There's other places in Scripture we can look to, but you think, what is a good work? Good work is faith on display. Again, it needs to flow from a heart who's saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, and because I believe in Jesus Christ, there's, there's these things, and how we're going to live, and how we're going to practice our faith, it's going to flow out from that. It's our fruit, the fruit of our faith. One commentator says this, deeds trump decoration. I just had to, I didn't come up with that. I thought that was pretty good. Deeds trump decoration. That's what he's saying. I'm thinking like, let your actions match your words, match your confession. But what is the heart of the matter? 
That's exactly it. It's the heart is the heart of the matter. That's where, that's what Paul's talking about. This is where worship flows from. Like even for men, the verse previous, hey, you can't pray to God with hands lifted high, with holy hands, if there's anger and quarreling. You need to deal with that. You need to get your heart right. And maybe for, for women, hey, you can't praise God and, and gather with other people praising God if, if you're like, hey, it's all about me and I want everyone to look at me. It's interesting. Now, Peter says the same thing in his epistle. I'll just read that for you. First Peter 3, 3 to 4. He says, do not, this is speaking to women, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning Adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's about the heart. That's the most important thing. Even just take you back there to Proverbs 31, verse 30. It says this, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And I'd say that's true for men too, right? Like, what is it, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for from it flows the wellspring of life. And so if we're, if we're guarding our hearts and if we want to, we worship and honor the Lord there, then it'll flow out outwardly into how we live our lives, how we dress. So just a question, does the way you dress reflect a heart that loves and worships God? Will it take away from God's glory or point, point towards it? For all of us, may God help us let our outward life match our inward life, right? This is the, that's the Christian walk. This is something we want to continue to grow in, that our outward life would match our inward life. And when it doesn't, we confess that before the Lord. We ask for forgiveness. I, I, people say, hey, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Amen. Because we know way better how we're supposed to live than we do. That's why we need Jesus Christ. Right? So may the way we dress reflect the heart change of a born-again believer. Now turning our attention to verses 11 to 15, I want us to see God's order in the church and then ask at the same time, is that ours? See God's order in the church. Looking at verses 11 to 12 and there's this instruction on teaching. Interesting enough, I've probably read more on this subject and, and the other passage surrounding this, more than anything else I probably have read as a Christian. And the reason being is we live in 2022. And I won't go into all my stories, but as a Christian, as a pastor, as a leader, you're like, okay, is this something that's worth standing upon? And so I've, I've actually probably read more than anything else about this subject. And then even this week preparing, I probably spent more time preparing this message than I have any other. Interesting, something that I, I feel I know quite well, but I want to be able to articulate it clearly with kindness. But just bring clarity, I think, to this subject. I think it is so clear. Interesting, as you go to the commentators, you're following, you're like, yes, we're on the same page, that's good. All of a sudden, this subject, everyone just goes in different directions. And there's so much written about these couple of scriptures. Very interesting. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Look again at verse 11 with me. Let a woman learn. That word learn, there is actually, it's an indicative, or it's an imperative. It's actually a command. Like, let the woman learn. Women should be there. They should be gathered, right? Acts 2.42, we looked at this uh, last week. Acts 2.42, as the church just started in Pentecost, it says they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They, being men and women, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's not like, hey, hey, just let the men learn. No, let the women learn. They should be coming and taking in what, what you have to teach them. Philip Towner says this, the situation of the Christian meeting, again, the gathering, is in view. An integral part of it was instruction, and all believers in attendance, except the one teaching, would be in the position of learner. 
I let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let the women learn quietly. This, this word is without disturbance. Robert Yarborough says this, the call then is not total verbal silence from women, but for them to exhibit a peaceful and gentle attitude in their task of learning. This same word is used in Acts 22 too, where uh, Paul is kind of, he's taken out from the temple, he's beaten, and he's taken into these, the barracks, and he wants to address the crowd, and as he speaks to them, he speaks to them in Hebrew. Acts 22 2 says this, and when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Like, that, like quietly to hear. Quietly to hear. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Submission, like to come under the teacher, to come under the authority of the one speaking. And then submission, again, is to who is the teacher? It's to the elders spoken of in, in chapter 3 in Timothy, to, to Paul, to Timothy, uh, to the leaders. We'll talk more about that. Again, Howard Marshall says this, submission here is the descriptive of the attitude or posture appropriate to learning. It implies acceptance of the teaching and authority of the teacher. He adds this, presumably men who are not teaching would also be expected to learn in quietness and in submission. But is, is submission bad? Is submission negative? Think about anyone who has kids. Kids need to submit to their parents, right? We're like, no, 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 it's submission's, like submission has a bad rap in the day and age in which we live, but we would never say, hey, kids... No more submission. We wouldn't ask them to do that. No, kids need to submit to their parents, citizens to laws, like to righteous laws. We're like, forget the speed limit. I'm making up my own. Right? We know we, we, we submit. We come under righteous laws. I mean, just think about this, though, in terms of submission. There's submission within the Trinity. I mean, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the Godhead. Just take a, a few examples to you in John Chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 57. Jesus says this, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. The living Father sent him. Christ is sent by the Father. He's in submission to the Father. And in John 14, 26, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I've said to you. We see in Scripture, there's other places I could take you, but the Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to the Father, and I'd say to the Son. Submission within the Trinity. Are any of them less equal? No, that's heresy. So we just have to wrap our mind. Submission is not a bad thing. We'll continue to look at that, continue to think that. But I think that is, is, is a really important thing we need to wrap our minds around. Within the Godhead, the Son submits to the Father. Jesus isn't any less God. The Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. 100% God. Look at, look at verse 12 with me, continuing on. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I just want to read this from one commentator. This kind of frames what we're talking about. It is widely agreed that this is the most controversial verse in 1 Timothy and perhaps in the pastoral epistles overall. The main reason is likely its function, real or perceived, in limiting women's teaching or other church leadership involvement. It is said to articulate a patriarchal understanding that is unacceptable among many who study and comment it, comment on it. Again, this is the context of a church setting, people gathered together. The specific of it, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Not, women are called not to teach the word as the church is gathered together. That role is for elder qualified men as we look later on at 1 Timothy 3. 
Again, it's specific. It's, it's one area. It's not saying, hey, women can't serve in, in many different areas. They can. We need women to serve in the church gathered, the church scattered. Even as we were led this morning in song and worship in so many different places. But there's a specific thing we see in Scripture that's prohibited. The, the teaching, the preaching of word, having authority over men. Of course, not all places are prohibited from teaching. Again, this is a specific place. Teachers in school, teachers in the home, teaching our kids. Titus 2.4, 2.15, teaching other women. Even I would say this, bringing correction and encouragement outside of this, this, this gathering. I'll just read from you to, from Acts uh, 18.26. There's this guy, Apollos, and he came to Ephesus and he was proclaiming Christ. In verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He proclaimed what he knew. He didn't, there were some things that he was missing. In verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, that's a, a wife and a husband heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Like, that, that's totally okay. It's okay, men and women. If you hear me say something, you're like, I don't know. Is that in Scripture? What does that mean? By all means, when we're done this time, take me aside and talk to me. Open up the word. Point me to that. But it, but it is quite clear in terms of the, the person standing up here to proclaim the word of God it's a call to men to do that, and it's not a call to just any man. Again, it's, it's men who would be elder qualified to stand and teach the word of God. How clear is this scripture? One commentator writes this about a lady's experience. Australian New Testament scholar Claire S. Smith tells of a new Christian, a university-aged woman in a church who read 1 Timothy 2 for the first time. When asked whether she found it difficult, she replied, no, it's easy. Paul is saying women shouldn't teach in church because that's the way God wants it. It really, it really is that simple, but let, we'll unpack it more than that. I think it's really, it's easy to understand, but it's hard to follow in our day and age. And, and there are many reasons why it's hard to follow. I think one, the big reason being we live in an egalitarian society. And what that means is, is this idea that every role should be available to every person or there's no equality. Right? This is, this is something, this is the world in which we live. Every role must be available to every person or there's no equality. Egalitarian. So this is the, the world in which we live. I just want to uh, talk about how do people try to, and because of that, because of the world in which we live, because of the rise of feminism over the past 60 years, uh, people, they look at this passage and we try to explain it away. And I'll just tell you a few reasons at this point. I'll tell you a few more. They'll, they'll, they'll say this. Okay, it's referring, this passage is referring to a specific problem within the church in Ephesus. Rich women were usurping their husbands' roles or those of the leaders in the church. It was a temporary situation. It needed a temporary fix and carry on. Or, or saying, hey, there's uneducated women, and if they, would, if they would just get educated, then, of course, they'd be able to teach. I don't think that's what is being said. And I don't think this is just like a, a one-off. I think there's consistency within Scripture. You can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. And here Paul's more talking about submission within the home, though still within the church setting, between a husband and a wife. And I think it's significant. 1 Corinthians 11, I just want you to see verses 2 and 3. And verse 16, kind of like what's crouched around what he says. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. There's traditions within the church. There wasn't unique to just Ephesus. It's taught in all churches. And he says this in verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. There's these different roles within 
the home. And the head of Christ is God. There's that submission. The son coming under the father. I won't take you through the argument here, but I want you to see verse 16. He finishes with this. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. There's this consistent practice, the consistent doctrine that was taught throughout the churches. It wasn't just Ephesus at a certain time. Robert Yarborough says this, Paul is applying the policy and practice of apostolic churches everywhere to Ephesus, for form, not formulating a specific set of guidelines for that setting alone. There's a situation, there was something happening within the church at Ephesus that led Paul to clarify this teaching, but it wasn't new teaching. It wasn't something out of the ordinary, but it's consistent within Scripture. I hope you'll be able to see that as we continue on. Again, looking there at 1 Timothy, the, the specific was, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. I think those are two different things. I think the specific is the act of teaching. I don't permit a woman to teach. And then there's this broader uh, word, or exercise authority over men. As in, we'll find that, that that job, to have authority over men, men and women, is for the elders, is for the leaders within the church. Interesting that this term, exercise authority over there's more written on this one verb than I've seen in any other part of Scripture. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe the first would be, what does a day mean in, in Hebrews 1? Yom. I maybe see more written there. But second, what does this verb mean? There's so much ink that's spilled because they, we try to find ways around. I think I know what it means, but is there another way to understand what it means? Even if anyone has a, a newer version of the NIV, the way they translate it, uh, they, they try to step aside, I think, from what it clearly is describing. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. I think it is that simple within the context of what we're reading. Because again, who is to teach and have authority, as I said, is the elders or elder qualified men. We see this in 1 Timothy 3. We're going to get there. We see this in Titus chapter 1. We see this in James uh, chapter 3, verse 1. There's consistency in Scripture. John MacArthur says this, as, as in the Old Testament, spiritual equality does not preclude differing roles. There are no women pastor, teachers, evangelists, or elders in the New Testament. The New Testament, Noah records a sermon or teaching of a woman. It's, there's just consistency uh, throughout. So I, I think we need to take the plain reading of the text. Again, this is held throughout church history. To like, I, It means what we think it means. And it has for almost 2,000 years. But it wasn't until the rise of, of feminism that people started looking at this scripture and being like, I don't think it means that. So almost 2,000 years, spirit-filled men and, and, and women would agree like, oh, okay, this is clear and what this text means. But just quite recently, the, the change within our society and culture, we're like, ah, I don't think it means that anymore. So we have to, we have to see that. Again, but that's a, the, our, our culture that we live in, being egalitarian, all roles must be open for everyone, for true equality. Is that true? I would just press you on that. Is that true? Can a mother be a father? Can a father be a mother? No, there's differences. There's differences between a husband and a wife. There's differences between male and female. And again, the reason why that's being so pressed is because of our society. They want to just level the playing field in every single area. And I think we could see clearly uh, that doesn't work. And again, when it comes to the Trinity, different roles do not mean different value. There's different roles within the Trinity. Even you, you think in terms of salvation, being saved by Jesus Christ, in Scripture, the Father planned salvation. The Son, Jesus Christ, came and died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again. The Son accomplished salvation. And then we see the Holy Spirit applying the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, to our lives for all who would believe and trust in Jesus. They have different roles, they're equal. And even just think of this idea, do roles define value? 
Do roles define value? I'd argue they do not, because you think anyone who has worked their whole life and then, in, and then retires, do you no longer have value because you're not working anymore? Or, or maybe some of our young people who are students, hey, you're not earning a living, you're not contributing to society, so you don't have value? No, that's, that's garbage. Roles do not define value. So we need to, I think, have that in our minds as well, again, looking to the Trinity for the clearest teaching there. So again, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So again, why this instruction? Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. He gives this clear reasoning for it. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. The context of 1 Timothy or what was happening in Ephesus provided the reason for Paul bringing up this teaching. But his reason for this teaching was in fact rooted in creation. It's rooted in God's design. You can keep your finger in 1 Timothy. If you want to turn, I'm just going to go to Genesis. What is, what is Paul referring to? We read in Scripture, verse Genesis 1, 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Well, Genesis 2 is actually day six of creation just spread out. And so we get into the details of day six of creation, and we see if we would read on, that Adam was actually by himself and he was naming all the animals. And in 2 verse 18, so Adam was made first. In 2 verse 18 in Genesis, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So Adam was by himself. He's naming the animals. And then God made woman out of man to be a helper for him. Hope we can, we can see that in Scripture. And then if, if the conclusion of, of creation, what does God say in Genesis 1.31? Is, is very good. God made man and, and he made woman and, and to be in different roles and to complement one another. And God said, this is very good. That's, I just want you to see that. This is God's good creation. When did this happen? This is before the fall. This is before sin entered the world. This was God's intention, and he said it's very good. So that term I, I even introduced to you, different roles to complement one another, equal in value, different difference in roles. We call that complementarianism. That's a big word. It's just having that word complement one another in a phrase. So we, we, we would practice that, God willing, in our homes, men and women, to complement one another. And in our church, we hold to that. I think this is the key to unlocking this section that Adam was created first and then Eve. That Paul roots his reasoning in creation order. And, and friends, when you, when you go through hard parts of Scripture, you want to use what's clearest to interpret what's less clear. This is a good practice in, in uh, biblical um, hermeneutics, in reading Scripture, understanding Scripture. Take the clear text, interpret the less clear. Paul can't be more clear. The reason he holds to this teaching is because of the creation order. But... I just also want to again bring up to you, how is this teaching explained away? I think it's so clear. Oh, the reason he's holding to this is because Adam and Eve, creation order. And I just want to kind of talk a little bit about the ways people still want to speak past this, the clarity of this text. There's Galatians uh, 3.28. Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. I was talking about salvation. In Christ, we are one. There's not these differences. We are saved. So they'll take Galatians 3.28, though, and say, hey, no, 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 we're all one. There's no distinction. You're like, well, what, how, why is Paul contradicting himself? And, and why would he do it just there? So I, I don't think that's so clear. I think the clear text is 
Adam was formed first and then Eve. Or, or we'll try to explain away this, this text in, in Timothy. We're saying, hey, like, well, if a woman has gifts, if God's given a woman gifts in ministry, then she's called to it. The Spirit gives gifts. The Spirit wrote this book. The Spirit wrote the Scripture. So what happens if we, like, we think we experience something, but then the Scripture says something else? We need to come underneath the authority of Scripture, not let our experience or what we're feeling come on, on top of that. Or another way in which we can kind of, it has been argued or trying to look past what this scripture, I think, is clearly teaching, it will point to various women and how God used them in scripture. Deborah, the judge, Anna, prophetess, when, when Jesus came into the world, or even obscure texts like Romans 16, 7, is this woman, Junius, Was she well-known among the apostles? Some people say she was an apostle. And so we use these obscure texts. And again, there's such clear teaching already on leadership. And so you don't go to the obscure ones and try to build something. You use the clear ones to interpret the less clear. And And of course, though, too, when I'm talking about this teaching, many times people or women will share how they've been hurt, how they've been wronged by a church that holds to this. And that's not right, and people need to repent. But it doesn't mean that we would all of a sudden change and get away with, with this, throw away the clear teaching that we find here in Scripture. And then, of course, the big thing is times have changed. It's 2022. You're like, I don't know. I think God's word doesn't change. I think the, the Lord's eternal. And I think what Paul's speaking of, he roots it in creation order that's so significant. Because, friends, is creation order still in effect? Do you think, does God care about that? He's like, yeah, yeah, that was at the beginning of time. I want you to see, just even in the New Testament, do we still see creation order in the New Testament? Yeah, we see it as it's describing marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, 22 to 25, what I mean is that if we never saw any creation order again mentioned in the New Testament, we're like, okay, is this... Like it's something that God did, something he intended. But we see it again in Ephesians 5, to 25. It says this. This is talking about in the home. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And friends, I want you to see this. We're just touching on this kind of roles within the home, but verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the calling. Hey, men, you're to lead in your home and you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? He died on the cross for his church. So it's this sacrificial leadership. It's like laying down our lives so we could lead our wives. So I want you to see that, but then also the other part where we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, that's talking about different roles within the home, within the church and submission, and it's rooted in creation order. So it's not something like, oh yeah, it happened, like God, I don't know, he just decided to do it that way and it doesn't matter. Like it clearly, like God does nothing by accident, he does everything within order, and we see that order come in into the days and age in which we are living today. I hope you can see that. Going back to the text, so for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I love, there's like no easy part of this passage. <laughs> Is Paul pointing to the fact that women are more prone to sin or easier to be deceived? No, I don't think that's actually what he's doing. What I think what he's doing I think he's pointing to the bitter fruit of role reversal, to the Garden of Eden, to the first time that this, was, this actually happened. I'll just bring you back again, finger here. I can just read it. In Genesis chapter 3, as sin got introduced, who does the serpent go after? He goes to the woman. God had created these roles. Hey, men, uh, Adam, you are to lead You're to watch over your wife. Satan goes straight to the woman. Satan purposely despised the 
the leadership roles in place between Adam and Eve. And Eve ate the fruit, and Adam didn't stop her, and he, and he ate it too. But friends, who got called to account for this sin? I want you to see this in Genesis 3.10. Genesis 3.10, God says this, and he said, I heard, or sorry, Genesis 3.9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That you is singular. He's calling Adam out. He calls Adam to account. Why does he just call Adam to account? Because Adam was the one in charge, right? If you're, you're with a bunch, of a bunch of people and something happens, it's like, who's in charge? Who's going to be the one to take the blame? Adam takes the blame. And how do we know that? Well, who is held accountable for sin coming into the world? Is Adam. As the head. MacArthur is helpful here. He says this. This is not to say that Adam was less culpable than Eve or that she was more defective. Although he was not deceived by Satan, as was Eve, Adam still chose to disobey God. And as the head of their relationship, he bore ultimate responsibility. That is why the New Testament relates the fall, sin entering the world, to Adam's sin, not Eve's. Romans 15, 12 to 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. So I think why Paul goes here in the letter in Timothy is like, hey, look what happened when the roles that God intended to be walked in were reversed. Look how bad it was. God has given us an order, even still today in the home, in the church. Again, look what happened when they disobeyed. And we get to verse 15 of this passage. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Again, this, this passage, you're like, okay, I get to verse 15. This is going to be very simple. I'm like, no. Every verse you get to, you're like, oh, what is being said here? There's a number of different ways to understand that. I just want you to notice in verse 15, it says, yet she, singular, will be saved through childbearing if they, plural. And so one thing we know it's not saying, it's not saying that women are saved through childbirth. It's not saying that. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ by trusting in him and what he has done. So we know it's not saying that. But I, I think there's a link with Eve. She's mentioned in the previous passages, and I think there's a, a link with Eve because of what was said to her in Genesis 3.15, what was said to the snake, right, as they, as they all sinned, And God says this to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be one coming from the woman, one coming from Eve, who's going to crush the head of the snake. If you're with us as we went through Genesis, that's why we have genealogies in the Bible. That's why there's a genealogy in the Gospels, because they're like, which one is coming from Eve? The Messiah. So I think there's hints at this in 1 Timothy 2.15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. There's one coming from Eve and continuing on. There's the seed of the one who's going to crush the head of the snake. So I think, for, I think that is happening here. But then it continues, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I think it brings it back to focus on women. I think there's this call, what he's saying is women to be faithful, what you have before you. Good works. And for some, that, for sure, I think it's saying like to be a mother, to be a wife. I, I, I think it is saying that, but we would also say it can't mean just that. Because some women are single. Some women can't have children. So more than that, like be faithful for what God has in front of you, by how? Continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Those two terms, faith and love, together, we see Paul mention that about his own faith in 1 Timothy 1.14. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I continue having your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue loving him. And what's going to flow from that? Holiness, holy lives. 
filled with the Holy Spirit and a life of self-control. Again, you see self-control to begin with, self-control to finish with. Again, this call to proper worship. I hope you can see the clarity within this text. The first part we looked at, a call to our outward life to match our inward one. I hope you saw the clear teaching on why Paul doesn't permit a woman to teach or preach in a church gathering. It's just, this is how God has called us to do. This is the inspired word of God. And will we obey? Will we say, yes, we will follow? So question like, so what? Why, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Friends, is there not a massive blurring of lines about sexuality and roles in our culture and time? Holding to this, this gives clarity. In fact, stands in contrast. And this is what God has called us to. And I, and I would again say, is it clear? And, and for other churches, we're in a minority position saying this is clear. I understand that. But for everyone who would say that's not clear, I would ask, what else is not clear in Scripture? Because if that's not clear, what else is not clear? But I think the big question is, does God know best or do we know better? Like this is just a submission coming under what the Lord has said. Does God know best or do we know better? Friends, we have been entrusted with this truth Will we walk in it? Will we hold to it? Yes, as a church, we are complementarian. Again, men and women equal of value, yet having different roles and responsibilities. We'll continue to unpack it as we look at elders and why it's, I think, clear this passage and ongoing, why God calls uh, men, and not just any men, certain specific men to lead the church. So we humbly seek to be obedient to God and to walk in his ways. And I believe this gives glory to God. We are sinners saved by grace out of his kindness. And then we just like, man, I just want to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And then I see this teaching in scripture, okay, Lord, I want to, I want to obey it. I want to be honoring to you in it. And I think that is honoring to the Lord. So as we gather as believers each week to worship, to open the word, to fellowship, we simply want to do what pleases God. And so we obey the word as, as best we can by his grace at work in us. And I pray that Christ is glorified through this. So I hope you can see this. If you want to bow with me as I close this word in prayer. Oh, Lord. I just pray you would take this word and sanctify our hearts, our lives through it. Lord, I pray whatever I said that wasn't from you, may it fall to the side. May we not remember it. Oh, Lord, I pray you would minister to us uh, through your scriptures, Lord. Thank you for the clarity. I pray you give us uh, courage and also kindness uh, to walk, I think, in this teaching. Lord, knowing that uh, many see differently, and may we still have grace uh, and kindness towards them, Lord, where, where I think it is clear in your text. But I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in this church as we seek to be obedient to that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.